Welcome to the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your co-host, Morgan Wack, and I'm here with the Unionista, Eddie Matthews. How are you doing today, Eddie? Uh, I'm doing okay. I actually do have one more AI-related <laughs> timely topic. Let's hear it. If I may. Yeah. Okay, so I get this newsletter called Morning Brew. Do you get this? I do not. Well, it's kind of like a weekly wrap-up of, you know, major news events it, and what's going on in the tech world. And once a, like, morning? I think it's every day, yeah. Maybe every weekday. Gotcha. Anyhow, today, <laughs> today they had an eye-catching headline. Uh, AI girlfriend. And I was like, I'm single. Tell me more, you know? <laughs> and so I scroll down. I'm just going to read it because... Is this how you're about to break it to the world that you have an AI girlfriend? No, I'm just going to read it because it's the most fascinating, incomprehensible Gen Z thing I've ever heard. Are you ready? I'm excited. excited. Okay. Snapchat influencer Karen Marjorie made more than $71,000 in one week after releasing an AI version of herself, Karen AI, and charging fans $1 per minute for Karen AI to be their virtual girlfriend, Fortune reported. As of last week, Karen AI had more than 1,000 boyfriends, aka paying subscribers, and Marjorie estimates she could eventually bring in $5 million a month from her chatbot. Brilliant entrepreneur (laughs) from whoever that is. You have to say, it's pretty smart. Yeah, and just extremely sad. Like, is Spike Jones somewhere in LA reading this? And being like, I predicted the future. I mean, was it? I, I just watched an episode of The Twilight Zone the other day that had pretty much that exact same premise, though. I feel like it's a tried and true formula that, that goes beyond. I mean, let's give Spike Jones credit. It's a great movie. Great version of the, the story. But I think people have been anticipating this sort of thing for, for quite a while. I mean, I think, is she like an OnlyFans person, like without the... No, she's a Snapchat influencer, Morgan. Uh, sorry, but I, I think it's a serious. Like, she's not some OnlyFans. Like I almost person. feel less bad she's a serious for the people job. that are like knowingly paying a dollar to just be like, I need some human comfort, even real, than the people who like think the real person is gonna like date them. You know what I mean? Yeah, and if you're gonna ask me whether I'm bothered that I share Karen with 999 other Is this other why dudes. you told me to Venmo you 10 bucks earlier today? <laughs> you I needed podcast? an extra 10 minutes. I'm lonely. I don't know what to say. Yes, dude, I'm lonely. I got, I got what do you want me to dude. say? Hey, you got a friend you right here. I needed you earlier when I needed 10 bucks. You said, what's it for? And I said, I'm, my AI, I girlfriend. AI girlfriend, right? They never get busy around doesn't matter time of the night that it, it she does always respond i will say that if she didn't she's like sorry i'm busy <laughs> come back, <laughs> come back later. <laughs> sorry about that. it's really funny yeah sorry i'm cooking dinner <laughs> that's great um yeah so i I thought that was a that's a solid opener that's a solid opener for this podcast so yeah anyhow 
Um, the WGA, Writers Guild of America, is on strike. Uh, I read somewhere that it kind of comes down to two issues, um, like AI limitations and chat GPT restrictions. And um, the other issue was regarding, uh, oh, right. Not treating them like contractors, but treating them like employees, like human beings, basically, <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, talking about the, <laughs> so we're actually talking about the writer's strike going on in Hollywood. And those are the two, right? So trying to avoid being seen as uh, contractors in the gig economy and also limiting uh, AI tools are, to my understanding, the two tenants of, uh, you know, what the dispute is about. Is that? Yeah, I really think it's mostly the the former, but we're mostly talking about the latter because it's kind of more interesting, whereas the former one is kind of just like more general gig economy stuff although i think we will talk about that as well but i do think like the ai stuff is catching headlines because it's you know it touched on that stuff but i do think the majority of the time being spent on the negotiations is more about netflix and the fact that people don't get paid residuals for streaming and that sort of thing yeah it's um it's crazy i didn't know about this delineation between writing for broadcast television and writing for streamers like the pay i guess is radically different if you have something on traditional you know live television versus streamers or or i don't know maybe it's maybe it's different even among the streamers well they they, they bring up some really interesting examples so it's not just like i think that there's a lot of this sort of thing across industries right so, you know, they talk about Uber. The reason Uber has a huge advantage is because they, even though they're competing with taxis, they don't have to follow essentially all the laws that have restricted the expansion of taxis in the past. Uh, same with Spotify. Um, you can't pay a radio station to put your music on the radio, but Spotify can incentivize you to not take royalties if they spread your music. So they essentially, even though they're competing on the same axes, because they're technically a tech company and they're working in a slightly different space, the laws don't apply. And so I do think that a lot of aspects here are more about how new companies and especially tech companies have an advantage, not because they're necessarily novel or they provide something new to consumers, but because they find legal niches that allow them to outcompete extant industries, which is sort of anti-capitalist because it's not actually providing anything to consumers. It's just negating existing laws. Um, yeah, is that kind of how you read into this? I mean, we'll talk about the Luddite stuff as well, but it, that is essentially Netflix and the streaming companies have for the writer. In all the like laws and all the union wages that have been negated were premised on broadcast because that's where writers wrote. And so essentially like, yeah, writers, Wages if they write for TV because they get paid every time something comes on syndication, and right. all those funds are essentially gone. Right. So if you worked twelve weeks a year as a writer in the nineties, if your show got picked up, you essentially you know you were, that was great. You could make a good living on. You could spend time writing, and then you get one show off the ground, and that's great. And usually the episode series are way longer as well. So series syndication, it was all prefaced on like twenty episode shows that you work year round on. 
Whereas something like Netflix can be like, okay, we're doing a six episode limited series and that's it. You get that one paycheck. We'll pay you the minimum wage that's necessitated by the union, but you're never going to get any residuals. We don't have to pay you for any reruns. And it's barely, you know, it's barely enough. A lot of times uh, having listened to a few of these podcasts that are very pro writer, unsurprisingly, but are very true and make good points. Um, they don't make nearly the same amount that they would have, and they don't get as much work as they would have, you know, t- even 10, 10 years ago. Yeah, that's frightening. Well, I mean, the article that we read is from the Atlantic, The Luddites of Hollywood by Gavin Mueller. And basically, it's making this comparison to the original Luddites who, as the article goes, were English textile workers in the 1800s at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, rebelled against mechanization by breaking into factories and smashing machines. And then the article just goes on to make the case that that was the culmination of um, their protest, not the inception of it, and how uh, basically these old, well, at the time, groundbreaking industrial revolution uh, companies in the textile industry were using machines to just crank out products uh, quicker and more efficiently, but of worse quality. And actually, you know, according to the uh, Royal Charter in in uh, England, the Luddites actually had the legal right to um, uh, own the means of production to my understanding, or at least regulate it. And uh, they were just ignored. (laughs) And so they uh, smashed all the machines of the uh, textile companies that, that ignored these uh, laws that were, they were on the right side of, right? Yeah, that's pretty much the case. I think uh, how it actually went down was they said, Hey, uh, we're here to try to sort out these wages. You mind taking a meeting? And they're like, wait, you call yourself the Luddites? Get the hell out of here. And then the Luddites came back that night, smashed all their shit. So that's the, the canonical uh, retelling that I believe I saw on, on the History Channel. We might need to either pause for five to ten <laughs> seconds, or I could edit this in later for all of those who are needed to catch their breath after how much you just made them laugh. Exactly. Yeah, this is where you stop. Usually if we're at, like, or if I'm in a class teaching, I give it a good, like, 20 seconds uh at this point but uh i suppose you can slow down your podcast break take a breather and uh come back come back once i have you um i i do think the the interesting kind of crossover that the article talks about what i see kind of with the the the, essentially the the european model which is that the luddites had invested all their time they were tradesmen who had perfected their craft and these new tools were a threat to everything that they'd you know come to to learn and all they wanted was essentially uh the adoption of these new technology existing skills and so the the author of the piece goes at length to kind of note that the luddites weren't actually just smashing at random they were smashing low quality textile machine operators so ones that didn't live up to their standards that they had kind of perfected and uh marketed the country um, and so they're in a, you know, a very tough spot. And so the analogy here with the writers would be that the ChatGPT type text is not great. Um, and a lot of it is low quality. And so the worry is that 
writers are going to be shoehorned into clean up crappy chat GPT writing and get paid less for it rather than coming up with kind of original ideas on their own. I'm not sure how realistic that is, but I think the, the idea that people are going to continue to be shoehorned into crappy jobs because ChatGPT can do one or more portions of it and kind of get around legal legislation is a definite worry that we've already seen with you know copyright issues around real technologies. And I had you watch some of the, the video. Um, I don't know if you go on YouTube and you click you know, Wes Anderson's Star Wars or Wes Anderson's Lord of the Rings. There's all these videos that just essentially are appropriating Wes Anderson's aesthetics to recreate, you know, existing technologies. And the worry is that this will get better and better and soon make, you know, 80 or 90% of a movie without any human input. Um, and so all those jobs will be gone. And what I think interesting here, Eddie, so sorry to, to go on a monologue, but I think the interesting portion of this is that unlike taxi services, or you know the hotel industry, or which do have a union, but it's not as strong. I think the interesting portion of this is that I think the writers will get compensated in some way. I mean, they're going to meet in the middle, and I'm hoping they get a good deal because I like good writing. Uh, but the fact that they have such a strong union seems almost a necessity at this day and age when things are going to be adopted to AI so quickly. And the fact that the writers' guild is so strong is making a huge difference in like the power that they have especially in an industry where it's, you know, highly desired. Lots of people want to be writers um, and the best of the best make it to the top because the union kind of protects the standards and ensures that writers get compensated for what. Wow. Um, okay. Didn't know I was doing a podcast with Karl Marx today. <laughs> when did someone exhume that guy? Jeez, here he is hopping on a podcast. I don't even think, think that was a my very, friend uh... And here's some commie. <laughs> Some commie jumps on here and just takes the stage and rants for 10 minutes. I don't even think that's a very leftist state of view. I think unions in the U.S. are low, like lower uptake than even like capitalists. Yeah, I've never understood why um, workers would not want to unionize in whatever organization they are. I kind of get, you know, you hear these anecdotal examples of... uh, unions that are just run terribly and just have bad leadership and are just like a drag and are counterproductive. So like, I get that, but in, in general, right. Well-run unions, why in the world, like there's a reason that the leadership of companies and organizations 99% of the time never want their employees to unionize because it gives you more leverage and power. So like, why would you not run toward that if you were the workers, you know? I mean, it's a collective action problem and they're super hard to solve, right? And it's the, the gains come with agglomeration, right? It's like a reverse pyramid scheme problem where the first couple of people that join the union, they're not going to benefit much and there's tons of risk. So starting a union and kicking off a union at a place is incredibly difficult. And it almost exclusively comes from like young activists because of that problem. I think that the WGA has leverage because it's such a, they have such a huge spotlight on their industry. And so when they unionize, it gets covered daily by, you know, the, by the trades and the center of media in this country, you know, in many ways, the center of media in the world. And so they've just got a ton of leverage, but um, 
usually unions don't have that or like uh in the nba or mlb they have a lot of leverage too because there are millions tens of millions of fans who do not want a strike and so you know it brings owners to the bargaining table in a way that usually they're never having to like workers can't grind entire industries to halt in, in the same way i feel like these examples are so few and far between in this country you know i almost disagree i almost feel like it's amazing i totally agree there's a finite amount of people that are at the very top which makes it easy to unionize because you only have to convince a few people and there's no competition from outside right like if if mlb wants to be like well we're just going to start our own league with non-union members it's like okay those guys are going to suck or else they'd be in the original league right (laughs) but i feel like with writing there's so many people i mean maybe like the cream of the crop make it to the top and sure there are like some amazing writers who are in this union but i feel like writing and creative industries like that there's just so much competition and so many people want to be writers or musicians or whatever it is yeah i agree um I don't know uh, now that there are so many opportunities, um, like you're saying, for writers to get work. And there's so many different outlets and so many streamers and writers who are in their 20s and don't mind having roommates and living in the valley of L.A. And, you know, if it means they can get their show on Amazon. Uh, I don't know if this is the beginning of the end, you know, of that of that. WGA or just unionizing in that industry in general? I mean, that's the flip side of the country. We did a whole podcast on the blacklist. Like, the blacklist, great for writers, but, like, bad for the union, right? Like, if the union, if you essentially can't get your foot in the door unless you're an approved writer, that's terrific for the writer's union. Whereas if it's just based on the value of the script, because scripts are going around and people are evaluating just the that makes it much more difficult to kind of corral everything. So I agree. I, that's, I'm, I'm with you that I think it's, it's gotten much more difficult in creative industries to unionize, which is why it's so difficult for like gig economy workers and people to compete with Spotify and for, you know, members of Uber to unionize. But I, and I think when they pull it off, whether it's kind of a carryover or not, it's quite impressive. Yeah. There should be like a, um, ACLU, but just for the creative industry, you know, just like a bunch of really talented lawyers who are not artists, but are patrons of the arts and will just like sue the living shit out of these companies until they comply with the law, you know. 